Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, the show dedicated to the private investor, and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. We want to show you how to cross the divide from residential investing over to commercial property investing. Through interviews, tips and lessons learnt, we share experiences of investing and give you the inspiration, knowledge and confidence to enjoy this great cash flowing strategy. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce to you my favorite American. It's Jamie Russo, back on the show. (laughs) That's a huge title, your favorite American. Wow. That's it, my favorite American speaker. So uh, we had a podcast two years ago in summer 21. So it's been a little while since we last spoke. We've got a lot to get through, right? A lot's changed. A lot has changed, totally. I mean, the market is so different. So we're going to get into a bit of that and obviously talk a little bit about the US market. But we'll also talk more about the fundamentals that are going on. But first, before we get into that, for those that haven't heard our previous podcast, Jamie, maybe you could just give a quick introduction to who and where you are. Yeah, so I'm sitting uh, just south of San Francisco, California. It is beautiful and sunny today. Uh, and getting a little bit warmer. We tend to take a while to uh, to warm up. And I, let's see, I operated co-working spaces for eight years in Chicago and then Palo Alto, which is in Northern California. I did not start nearly as early as you did. I thought I started fairly early, but you've been doing this. You've kind of stumbled into this very yeah. early. So I opened my first space in Chicago in the very beginning of 2012, which was still probably about the same time as we work. I don't think Industrious had opened yet. So pretty early when it wasn't easy to find things on the internet about co-working, sure. which is part of my why. I mean, we, t- we so I just got to interview Jerry for my podcast and Jerry talked about his why for the work that he does. And yeah, part of mine was people were really just kind of, and still, I think trying to like figure out the model and you know, how to get it right and sort of the right path forward. And, you know, you kicked off the podcast, you're like, a lot has changed. And I thought, and I think it still will. Sure. <laughs> I, think, I think like death and taxes, you know, well, it'll yeah, one- it just, well, it got accelerated, didn't it? Because of what happened in the pandemic thing, you know, a lot of changes happened there that, that yeah. were happening already. There was trends there, yeah. but it just accelerated. Yeah. Accelerated. Right. And I think maybe because of the acceleration, it's like, well, things are still, you know, trickling and changing and evolving. So um, I also was the executive director of the Global Workspace Association for five years. So kind of a macro view of the industry. And now I, I do similar work that you do. I don't help generally, although I would say probably half of my co-working startup school folks do own small commercial buildings. Interesting. I know. I don't teach how to do that though. They come to me yeah. knowing like, 
yeah, probably having not put all the pieces together, but having the sense like, or they bought a building and weren't totally sure what they were going to do with it and then stumbled into co-working and have decided to put those things together. Yeah. So I run the co-working startup school to help operators launch co-working spaces and other, you know, sort of third type spaces. And then um, our other big program is the community manager university. So for, for the folks that operate the spaces, we support their training and development. Okay, we're going to touch on that again later on because there, there is a little bit of there's some similarities in what we do, but also there's a lot of synergies there where you know you do one piece and we do the other piece. So we're going to come back to that. But I just wanted to also set a little bit of context, which we did discuss a little bit before. And let's just make your definition of co working, right? Oh gosh, wait, you, you want me to define co working? Yeah, just, you know, what's the physical makeup? So our, our listeners generally are here to learn about investing in commercial property, looking at different strategy types, not always uh, multi-let, but also single-lets as well. But your term of co-working is slightly different than my specific term of co-working, I would say. Okay. So just, just yeah, what's the physical attributes yeah. of a co-working space? Okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, the term multi-let is not a term that we use in the U.S., but I I like it. So I would say if I was sort of being more generic, I would call it like flexible office space, right, with multiple tenants, multiple yeah. users. So in the U.S., though, the, you know, popular term is co-working, which has its challenges, not everybody knows what co-working is yet either. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about the pandemic is like it accelerated yeah. this work closer to home. I don't need to go to a corporate office, this third space use, but still not everyone uses the same terminology or even knows like what to call it. That's why I think we're still in this like great state yeah. of flux, also a state of just early days because here flexible office space is still two to 4% of commercial office space in any given market. It, it probably was the same last time we talked. I mean, it's tiny, right? Yeah, yeah. But it, and to grow anything, it's got to have massive, massive <laughs> change because yeah. the, the office market is so large. But, but interesting, you said third space twice already. So there's a new term, right? <laughs> oh, I, you know what? And I, I know I mentioned this on my podcast and so my podcast is called the Everything Coworking Podcast. And there's a little bit of discussion about it in our Facebook group. Well, what can I call my space then if it's, if it's not really co-working? I was like, oh, this poses a lot of problems because you, you know, for, for your listeners, if you're going to create a multi-let, I'll use your terminology space, you know, that's a customer acquisition business and you need to, you, you need customers to know what they're looking for and to find you and say, that's what I want. And if you're, you know, creating this product that is like, doesn't have a name, a good name, yes, customer acquisition really challenging. So I love the idea of morphing third spaces. And you and I just talked in our, our interview about like greater hospitality and amenitization of buildings and sort of like, you know, at scale, the experience you can create in, in a building and, and there could be a lot of terms for that, but you need the user to recognize what it is that they want and be able sure. to buy. It. So, yeah, and, and really pitch yeah. towards that, yes. So in the UK, you mentioned um, GWA. So in the UK, it was the Business Centre Association. So our definition was business centres. And in the US, the terminology I was used to originally was executive centres. They executive used to call them, right? Yeah, and to be fair, that's been around for a long yeah. time. 
with just a really more dense layout of private offices. Yeah, for lawyers yeah. in the main. For lawyers <laughs> and accountants. Yeah. Yes. So then when co-working as a term came over here, or at least for me in my little head, it was more about a space that was shared. It had some meeting revenue and it also had, or some meeting rooms, and it also could be used for a venue. So you had sort of these three different income streams. Yeah. Whereas co-working now is morphing more into, right, well, actually, and we spoke earlier about WeWork, people on the face of it talk about WeWork being a shared space, but actually it's many, many glass boxes with a small shared space. It's all That's about right. the private offices. And I, I don't know, but I mean, our revenue from the space letting is about 85, 90%. You know, it's just the core, no matter how hard you, you yep. want to talk about all the other stuff. It has to be said, though, that adding the other stuff adds value to the, the core, right? But yep. your definition of co-working really is just that whole piece. It's right, private offices, meeting space, shared yep. spaces, and yep. memberships. Yeah. Yes. It's a word for the business model that you just described, but it is definitely not describing sort of open plan seating flex space because yeah. that model doesn't, it's not profitable. Doesn't pay well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although, okay, you know, so, just for your yeah. audience, I still get surprised. I had a building owner schedule a call and he has a building with no like community space. So reception and then all offices. And he did say he, he I think he wasn't sure that he could run this model because he didn't have any of that space. And and he was quite surprised when I said oh, it's really hard, you know, it's hard to acquire customers, the churn's higher, and, it, you know, it's not that profitable. Like the revenue yeah. per member is pretty low on that. Yes, you want to have some. And and he didn't know. So I think it's a good question to ask because I think there's still a lot of mis misconceptions, misperceptions about kind of what makes the model tick. Yeah, sure. it's private I'm, offices. But to I'm, your point, it has to be an attractive environment, which generally involves some diversity of experiences space uses space. yeah yeah um it's interesting because you I, I heard on your own podcast which you, you you mentioned the name of which is great the um there was an episode where you spoke about trying to be nervous on behalf of your customers that you're helping <laughs> <laughs> because because yeah. sometimes they come to you with an idea that deviates from the model a little bit too much and although we're all up for you know variances and trying different innovation Ultimately, the core is still the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just talk me through what's been happening in the U.S. market. And has, has the shift from the city to the suburb slowed down? Was that a thing? Has it balanced back again? You know, what, what is the shape of things right now? Oh, yeah. I would say, you know, people still expect like, you know, New York is bouncing back. But there are other cities. San Francisco is still, you know, really... Even my husband, my husband has a birthday coming up. San Francisco might be kind of a unique use case. Maybe, maybe Seattle. Uh, he has a birthday coming up. And I said, well, you know, let's go into the city. Let's, you know, make dinner reservations. He's like, I don't want to go into the city. Like we have some like homeless problem. You know, there's just some sort of fundamental systemic issues with San Francisco in particular. But I would say, you know, people are really all about the work near home. Yeah. And that, I mean, has just exploded. And at a large scale, we had a guest on recently. I can't remember exactly what their tagline. You know, it's like work work near home and be home for dinner kind of thing. Like just 
this idea that like commuting into the city for an hour is just gone. And they're, sorry, I know you're part of your audience may not think in square feet, but they're doing 25,000 square foot spaces, you know, in wow. pretty suburban locations. Yeah. Like at scale, you know, that's a, not that that's giant, but it's sizable. And I think, you know, pre COVID would somebody think it's a good idea to be doing minimum 25,000 feet in a suburban location risky, you know, but that's what they're doing and no problem. And, you know, their particular model is also interesting. It's members only. So they don't do any external meeting room revenue. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. don't do mail. They just keep it super simple, which for your audience, we were talking about like sort of the, you know, the investment aspect Mm -hmm. and then the, you know, high operational intensity that can come with this model. Like, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different ways to do it, but anyway, no slowdown in the suburban. And I would say, you know, we're still absolutely undersupplied in suburban markets. So do you think think that will swing back at all? I mean, at the moment, an argument is that, you know, right now, although maybe San Francisco is slightly different now, but yeah, but in the market, the jobs market, the employee had so much yeah. control and power that it, you know, it could go whichever way it wanted. But when we do have um, some challenges in those markets that actually the employers have more, I guess, say, but also the fact that, you know, if, if you are an employee in a business that might be changing its structure and you're not going to the office, you're not seeing the right people, you might be a bit conscious that actually maybe I need to start going in the office more just to be seen. <laughs> Is that no, I, something you think is happening or not? Yeah, I mean that, you know, you and I probably follow a lot of the same people on LinkedIn and I'm pretty pro in the camp of like some people really should go to the office. You know, I think about early people in their early careers. I can't even imagine what my career path would have looked like if I had been working from yep. home. And there's a lot of data around people who get promotions or the people who, you know, who who, sh- who show up, who are just seen. It's just a human bias, right? We yeah. we you know we like people that we see, and I think there are a lot of challenges with that. I mean, as a working you know parent who holds a lot. Of- parental responsibilities. Uh, you know, I, you know, I love the flexibility, but I think that anyway, so I think that's still just like this huge ongoing debate. I think employers, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley. So like Apple, if you want to work for Apple, you're going to the office in Cupertino. 
they're super selective about who they hire. They're a great company to work for. So you, you go. I think, I think with the, the changes that are going on, particularly there right now, with all the redundancies that have been going on, yeah, it might be that pendulum's going to swing. And what I don't know the answer to this, but what happens to some of the demographics in the local areas where people have been working from? I, I, certainly, I know that anecdotally around London, the market is still not back to where it was, but it's certainly very close to it. Yeah. But some of the secondary locations are still doing well. It's not like they've now suffered while the pendulum's gone back. So just be interesting to see how that all plays out. But in terms of investing, the great thing about the suburbs and the the secondary locations is they're more blooming affordable. They're more affordable if you want to invest, totally. Yeah, Yeah, and even outside of a a couple of other U.S. cities, Chicago, still very challenging. And shared workspaces in downtown Chicago, I think, still a challenging um, environment, DC still hard. So, you know, we're really seeing, did you mention Montana? Did you mention Montana? No, the last I had, you know, somebody mentioned, oh, I have a friend with three, you know, shared workspaces in Montana. Great example of like affordable commercial real estate, maybe not, you know, post pandemic, certainly pre pandemic, you know, where they can now really probably successfully operate a shared space model because people want to live there. We could debate for a long time about whether people should be going into the office. I think the whole hybrid approach where people want to work where they can and want to certainly like Monday, Friday is here to stay. And I think yeah. the space co-working, you know, people, you know, you and I talked to like, it's a privilege to have a home where you have, you know, great office space. Not everybody has that. Yeah. Or in my case, like my husband's home, we each have our own office. We only have one kid, so we don't need a lot of you know extra bedrooms. And we each have our own office. And still, I don't want to be at home with my husband all day long. You know, <laughs> you know, I I need to get out. He does not need to get out. He loves being at home, but I need the energy. I need the people. So you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for people to go to third you know third spaces. And he works for a company in Seattle, which is they don't have an office anywhere nearby. Uh, okay, yeah. That's another, but that's another example, right? If we had smaller children, there are a lot of reasons why home, you know, doesn't work for people, you know, and the mental health, we not to go down another total rabbit hole, but I think the UK was way ahead of talking about mental health as a challenge. And our, the U S surgeon general just came out with kind of a body of work on the mental health challenges of, and loneliness in particular. Right. And, and that like, sounds kind of odd, but he, you know, his work shows 50% of U.S. adults, you know, are pretty significantly lonely. And that comes from being at home and not talking yeah. to people, right? It's not good for us. And so I think, again, going back to sort of the evolution and the change, like people just aren't like aware of that as an issue. Some people might feel it acutely and be aware of it, but I don't think we're really aware of of that so much as a concept and a problem that needs to be solved. And then this idea that, oh, being a part of a, you know, a shared workspace or, you know, going to an office or whatever is like a way to solve that. So I still think there's like, for so many reasons, so much opportunity in the shared space, third space. Sure. Place. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, yeah. yeah. It's interesting how, I mean, even just during this discussion, it's, it's thinking about all the different ways it's evolving and that actually it's quite difficult to pin down. 
But it does still come back to really the fundamentals of we're, we're finding space, certainly from my side, you're, you're locating buildings that are maybe problem buildings that maybe aren't selling. They are therefore discounted and they've been built for another purpose. And now you're trying to work out, well, actually, what does the market now want? And the fact is shared space, or should I say flexible space, is growing everywhere. And so the pie, the, the office market or the, the workspace market may or not, may not be shrinking, but actually the size of the pie that's growing in flex space is at an enormous rate it's growing at. But interestingly, as you mentioned, I can't remember if it was on your podcast or this one, but anyway, is that, uh, is that, you know, it's still a tiny, tiny piece. Flex is still tiny. But, but interestingly, going to some of the, conferences as you've mentioned some GWA and things in the US I go to flex in the UK is the emergence of the corporate the more larger investors and landlords that is trying to get into this market so a question I had for you you offer quite a few programs to help people which you mentioned earlier on so we'll maybe just touch on that just now and just I want to just to back that up or bookend that with a question about are any of the corporate landlords starting to ask about how do we evolve our own internal co-working offer. So the first part of that really, Jamie, is just, you know, what are you doing to help people um, become better and more efficient operators? But equally, are you starting to have more of a, a questioning and, a, and an emergence of the corporate clients? Corporate meaning corporate like Looking office. like corporate landlords. So, for Corp- instance, yeah. we both know about um, BlackRock buying yeah. TOG so they yeah. can then develop out some spaces that they already owned. That was their way into the market. But others are trying to, like, land securities are developing out their own operator. So that was where I was coming from on that one. Yeah. So in the U.S., we see a lot of the really big institutional folks doing their own brand. So... Tishman Spire has studio um, and they are going after the, like we talked about on your podcast, I think the sort of at scale amenitization, like we've got food and bev, they're developing like food halls. They really recognize like to get people to come to our assets, we have to be really compelling. We have to have really interesting offerings, which are a mix of, you know, workspace, you know, food and bev, all all of it. Um, and it all has to be really good. So they're doing sort of like the campus sort of approach and they have, you know, a great workspace brand that they've developed on their own. Although they also have different levels of it. So for your audience, they have like sort of the more passive, like flexible office layer that doesn't have a lot of service, but it's flexible, you know, probably it's furnished, but simply, you know, yeah. kind of move in more like a spec suite. I, I don't know if you have a term for that, like show suite, spec suite, yeah, kind okay. of built space that's not highly serviced. Yeah, it's got, it's got a, a gigabit fiber line. It's there, yeah, ready like, to go. Right, yeah, yeah. And this is probably furnished, but lightly serviced. But maybe in, you know, next door in, in the building, they have like a, you know, pretty highly serviced version yeah. that they're running we we see some operator partnerships um Heinz is is i think the might be the biggest global um landlord is doing their own version i think it's called square 
so they're, you know, they're building out their own brand and they, you know, they're pretty, they've seen a lot of success with that. Again, this is like bigger, like really institutional folks who are not, it would be a good question, like what their ROI bar is for, you know, that actual business, but because it's, it's almost like table stakes for those big asset owners to have it in the building now. Um, the end user is demanding it. So if I move into a building, even smaller buildings. So one of the things is this kind of a side thing that I do is I, we, I'm with uh, another colleague running a program for Avis and Young to teach their commercial office brokers how to sell flex. Yeah. Um, because commercial office brokers, at least in the US, they're probably more advanced in the UK because uh, no. they, <laughs> They don't know how to think about an end user requirement, right? So, but a couple of them were talking about uh, a building in Canada where like they'd have a client who's like, yeah, I don't know. Do I need 5,000 feet? Do I need 8,000 feet? And get really stuck on how much space do I need? They can put the client in a building that has flex in it. They can say, look, don't get stuck. Just take the 5,000 feet. If you need more, we got you covered. If you need less, fine, move out of the flex space. So the ability to flex up and down like makes clients it's easier for them to commit. They had another client who wanted to go into that building but needed to do a build out, which was going to take eight months or whatever. Well, they put them into the flex space while the build out was getting done. So I think some landlords like have a lower bar in terms of monetization of that space if they could use it for you know they're getting value out of it elsewhere. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it so provides a bit of an incubator. But coming back to yeah. to you know what you're doing, everything co-working. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what you're doing to help operators, and and I'll just go back to land the big landlords again. Yeah. I, I think I know the answer to this, but have any of them actually approached you to support them in developing out their own, or do they all think they know what they're doing? Yeah, most of so the I mean. Yeah, I think a lot of them want to just do it themselves. And there are reasons for that, right? If they think it's core to their success and they want to build it in-house, then we'll see there's like a, the institutional folks are mostly trying to figure out, figure it out on their own. And they, some of them have brought experienced operators in-house to figure out how to do that. So Heinz did that with Annie Rinker, who used to work for um, car workplaces. And then, then I get a lot of calls from sort of more, you know, smaller mid-tier landlords who have space, who can't find a, you know, tenant and want to figure out, right, like, how do I do this? I find that they are resistant to enlist support. (laughs) Here's what I think about this model, right? And so for folks who are working with you, and you do a lot of free content on this, just like I do, it's a really simple model, but you can get it wrong really easily you know, or make mistakes that you have to spend money to fix later on. Your audience has the advantage that if they've purchased the asset, they've got some wiggle room around, you know, you, you know, you mentioned, I think on my podcast that you really encourage flexibility in the build out and being really intentional so that you can adjust if you need to um, later on. But when you lease a space, which is more common in the U S like it's very hard to fix those things. And so Um, And even the building owners, it it is hard to fix physical, it's expensive to make physical changes and you really want to get the model right. So I see a resistance, like it's a pain point, 
Um, and then I see sort of either a resistance or I'm really in a hurry and just want to decide all these things right now. And I don't really like want to take the time to get it right. So in my work, I have for the last few years been working, you know, mostly with operators who have bought a building and then want to do co-working uh, or folks who just are really passionate about the model and want to lease a space, which is a more challenging model because you got a you know, lot of deal terms yeah. that have to really line up to make that work. And I'm starting to have a way more conversations. I would love to do more work with landlords. They've been hard to find. Like, you know, how do you how do you sort yeah. of connect with them? They are now looking for solutions. Uh, I think in trying to figure out whether to commit to the flex model or not. That's so I think the yeah. big institutional landlords have been kind of on top of it and probably driven sooner by end user demand. And now the middle folks. You know, it's also financing interest rates are high. So if they have to do a build out, they have to, you know, refinance or, you know, go back to the bank and banks don't want to lend money to commercial office landlords. You know, it's a real, really challenging sort of macroeconomic time um, to do that. But we are starting to see that more than ever. And then IWG, I don't know if you've seen this in your market. I mean, they are after landlords to convert space. To do managed uh, contracts. Yeah. Yeah. Management agreements. Would, I'm going to come on to that a lot later on because okay, yeah, okay. it's so we'll prevalent in your market. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So basically, you're helping um, operators set up and run the trading element, really, so that they yeah, can. So we go through launch with operators and then we also support the managers of the space. So, which yeah. I also think is a great program for landlords that don't want to be actively involved you know, you still have, it's, it's not a passive business. It cannot imply that, but if you get a strong manager to run the space, that's, you know, well-supported. Yeah, Yeah. definitely a few examples of that. Right. Okay. So just delving in a little bit more. So you've, you've got a bank of customers there, which, which you're obviously gaining a lot of knowledge and understanding as well. Feedback to yourself. So I wanted to pick into that a little bit. So, yeah. what is the typical sort of size? A few quick fire questions. What's the typical sort of size of location that your team are working with? Well, if somebody was bringing a space to you and and they're saying, you know, it's X number of thousand square feet, what do you think? Ah, that's that that number works. Oh yeah, you know, I started to be more vocal about that, and I wonder if you sort of get like after you right, you see the feedback and you see what works. I think that the challenge with the work that we do is you get people who are really passionate and maybe they've already made a decision that is not easily undone. Yes. So you want to be supportive of that. But I, when I see a red flag, I try to get in front of that pretty quickly. I had somebody reach out to me who was going after 2000 square feet yep. and he was ready to sign the lease and he wanted help negotiating the lease. And I was like, well, I have two big red flags for you. One is it was a bank. And I've not, I know you love to, you know, sort of take old buildings and look for opportunities. Banks are really hard. For it's always reasons. a vault. There's a vault. That's a, it's always like, a vault. You got to work you out. Can't yeah. consider the vault to be monetizable in any way. It's too yeah. expensive to touch it. And 2,000 square feet is really hard. I mean, yeah. you and I yeah. talked about like, maybe if you're in a market that just wants that like, touchdown space, like low touch, maybe you can make 2,000 or 3,000 square feet work. It's not staff. You can't put staff in a small you space. Yeah, you can. Right. And it does depend on what city you're in and what location you're in. What city, what's your competition? What do people expect out of the product? So I, I think you're, 
I think you're taking you're taking a risk if you're going for a, a smaller location. Now that being said, if you own the asset, then the economic model is quite different, and so you still have to look at like what's the you know what's the best use of the space if it is sort of the the co-working multi-let model you may be able to because you own the building run a smaller space and you may be able to staff it but just helping people understand like staff is a huge expense that you're adding to the model and so you need enough inventory in order to be able to exactly yeah you're when you go for that smaller building it's really driving you to last less choice you're basically probably gonna have to do this that it's not yeah. fully serviced. I, yeah, exactly. I, when, I, when I say that, I mean, not having somebody there, as you say, looking after the customers, they maybe look after several buildings or it's, yeah. it's done remotely. Yeah. But that cost of one or one and a half or two people is the same for a 2,000 square foot right. building as it is for a 20,000 square exactly. foot building, right? It's just shared amongst many more square feet. I think that's one of the sort of simple aspects of the model that you, people just don't really process when you know, they go to a co-working space. Oh, I like this. I want to do this, but they can't back into those nuances. So you kind of asked about like, you know, so a, ho- a home run for me is, you know, I, you know, 10,000 feet. Like if I get somebody who's like, I'm doing 10,000 feet, I'll staff it with one person, maybe an extra part-time person. It's going to be pretty dense, you know, office use. I know who I'm serving. I have this pair in Houston that's doing a space for attorneys. And I know that sounds like service office, but I love it. They have a lot of shared services. They have a great network already. Like they can picture their exact perfect user attorneys need space. They need office space. Um, they're, you know, near a courthouse, but it'll be modern. You know, they're younger, modern. I, I love everything about that. They get a great real estate deal. Yes, again, lease, not a not a purchase. So that to me, and they don't need even 10,000 feet you know, from an operational perspective is not, uh, they, they, they're going to keep their day jobs, right? It's yeah. an investment business. It, it's still, it's, do you know, I mean, for the, for the listeners to this podcast, they'll know my magic number is 10,000 square feet. Oh, and I didn't okay. prep you on that at all. So <laughs> good to hear <laughs> you have the same perspective. It's yeah. just that magic number. It just seems to be where things start working better. And I didn't discover that by, by accident. Basically I discovered that. And, and we were lucky our first building was 10,000 square feet. Right. So, and we've had bots and there's, smaller that don't work so well and some bigger that work much better but 10 seems to be the the magic number to make these things work that's great okay so what are some of the operators that are coming to you now post pandemic things have changed a little bit what, what are some of the repeat recurring mistakes that you see you're like you said they're right i need to sometimes jump in front a little bit and just say are you yeah. sure you want to buy this 2000 square foot building you know what are some of the other things that you're feeling I've got to cover this off pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, size is, is the big one because it feels intimidating. That's probably not as big of an issue for your audience because you're not, most people aren't buying a 2000, you know, square foot building, but they might have a, you know, a nook or cranny that they think they might want to fill. Um, So size is a concern. And then I would say efficiency, right? If there's an atrium or, you know, a bunch of staircases or, how monetizable is the space? It's yeah. less of a concern when you're taking a traditional tenant because you're not monet, you know, the mot it's it's not net lettable area anymore. 
yeah. when you have one tenant, they're just leasing right. all the square footage. But as soon as right. you start netting right. it down, you're like, okay, yeah. this is going to be They might like the atrium. They might, you yeah. know, I mean, they might think about it, but it's not really impacting their business model. But because we're basically trying to monetize square feet, right? And it has to be, it's directly related to the amount of rent we're paying for. So we're paying for square footage that we can't yep. monetize. There's too much loss there. So, you know, any sort of fun, like a nice square building with, you know, one elevator shaft and, you know, probably smaller windows. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of windows. I think that is another, actually, I don't know what your buildings look like uh, in terms of like, you know, if you can't, if you're stuck with a lot of interior offices, I do think the bar is probably going up post COVID in terms of, you know, quality of space. I mean, you can never have only exterior offices and still be really efficient, but you know, people have, I think people have a really, there's a high bar to leave home, right. If you have an option uh, at home. So yeah, efficiency and efficiency is one of those things you don't understand until you pro forma the space until you do a test fit, right. You're pretty in the weeds by the time you understand the impact of, of efficiency. And I think that folks, you know, back to your question about like, how do you define co-working? People picture a lot of open, flexible, airy, inspiring space, you know, that's well-designed when they think of co-working and that is not efficient. So it's just such a fine balance to get that great like vibe feeling. And, you know, you and I talked about this in, in the interview for my podcast, like, places for people to sort of have these collisions and sit down and have a coffee together, but not too many or else, or else you're not going to get the return. Get on cheesed the off with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> such a fine balance. So that is, you know, always a concern. And anytime somebody comes to me and has like sort of this creative model they want to do, I, I have started to say like, look, the most profitable model is right. 10,000 feet and more dense than you'd like it to be. If you don't care about profit, fine, that's fine. Make these trade-offs. If you care about profit, then how are you making up for that revenue? You know, sometimes I'll get people who want to do, you know, your audience who probably wants to invest in space, maybe doesn't fall into this, but like they want to do a lot of events that are monetized, right? Oh, it's going to be an event space. And they have reason to believe it's just like, well, how are you going to make up for that is the challenge, which I think is a big model challenge that we're going to start to run into but right now yeah the not dense enough not big enough or you know with the with the pre-existing building you you know location and all those factors that that you teach people about in their real estate search like still matter you can't just take any vacant building and make it flexible and have you know customer acquisition like for your audience right like you have to attract customers over and over again not like a typical lease where you sign and you've got a tenant for yeah. five years, 10 years, 20 years. So people not understanding how much churn there will be and that you have to really, yeah, get, get a quality building in a great location, which is your, <laughs> I, you know, I teach about that in terms of signing a lease and, and search criteria. You know, there's a lot of added layers when you're going to buy the yeah, asset. We're, we're going to come back to that lease stuff. Definitely. So last couple of things I just wanted to cover off was an, an, Try not to go down to too much of a rabbit hole, but I, I want to just briefly touch on environmental issues, Jamie. We over here, um, ESG, environmental social yeah. governance, is becoming more prevalent. Corporate clients are starting to mm-hmm. ask and pull landlords that direction. I just wanted to see is that 
emerging over there too? Is there any kind of benchmarks also that are coming out? I mean, here we talk about um, scope one, two, and three, and then we have bream for buildings. You know, there's all sorts of there's, there doesn't seem to be a standard. Here's the benchmark, which is a bit yeah. of a challenge. But uh, yeah, so basically, the first part of that is corporate clients. Are they asking for it more yet? So I suspect at the corporate level, the folks that are going to the Tishmans and the Heinz, like the you know institutional, yes. Uh, you know we right we have lead isn't lead a global um, yeah. like gold platinum it's, and the well building. Those folks are all pursuing those for sure. Um, I would say the U.S. is horribly behind. <laughs> UK and Europe in terms of environmental responsibility. And it's a huge topic. So I would say at the like individual sort of investor level and the individual co-working space, it's still not as big of an issue as it should be. Yeah. Right. I mean, even the messaging around, there is starting to be some messaging around like getting rid of the commute is is great for the environment, right? That is true. Um, but then, you know, you get into all the issues about, you know, people work, but if you can work near home, you know, and still be a productive member of a team or, you know, you know, sure. whatever your team looks like. So, but yeah, no way behind you. That's interesting. Right. Well, that's your perception. I mean, it may be we're both, we're both countries are the same, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, I think the larger occupiers certainly are, that's on their list. I know that yeah. that start is just starting to trickle down because the scope two and three is when they start looking at their suppliers. And if their supplier is based in your building, they now need to start looking at the credentials of your yeah. building. So we're starting yeah. to get asked questions about what's your policy towards this? What's your policy towards that? Now, those policies are just that. They're just policies, right? Yeah. Bits of paper, yeah. bits of tech somewhere but actually the implementation is slightly different but i i think we're on that road it just depends how fast we're going to get there right okay maybe just to round off could you just give us just a little bit more of the detail on where people can find you and the programs that you do oh that's an easy one sure yeah um so podcast uh yes we've hit over 300 episodes which seems totally yeah, wow crazy. Yep, at everything co-working. Although I do have to remind people I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm sure you you probably get that too. Like I I I appreciate being asked, like, what is it that you do besides the podcast? Um so yeah, <laughs> help operators um launch and grow successful co-working spaces. Um operators can be folks that lease, folks that yeah, are you know, like your folks per um uh landlords and we also support the managers of those spaces through our community manager university and um that it's a training and development platform for that for that group and yeah we do a couple of other miscellaneous things like i said tr trying to help uh commercial office brokers learn how to sell flex i think that's a whole other part of our industry that is is shifting so yeah and we'll sure. we'll continue to shift as the landscape shifts but that's and what we're up to today jamie you also have one other podcast with you Avani. do you want to just I mention do. that that's right. The Flex Uncensored podcast, uh, which I co-host. So It's a great uh, podcast with interviews of industry leaders. Really fascinating. Yeah. And Gio asked some like great personal questions. So <laughs> I, yeah, we we're like yin and yang on the podcast. Yeah, you work talk. well together on that. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. All right. Thanks, Jamie. That's been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, Jerry, thank you for having me. And let's do this again before two years have gone by. <laughs> for sure.
Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the content delivered on the CPI podcast. Even though it's free to listen to, it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode. Did you know that by leaving a positive written review, you, yes, you will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast. And that's really important because by reaching a wider audience, it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week. For some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be your first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.